This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Gender Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sasha Rose Neal, Professor of Interdisciplinary Social Science at the Institute of Advanced Studies and Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Studies at University College London, to talk about the new book, The Tenacity of the Couple Norm, Intimate Citizenship Regimes in a Changing Europe, out 2020 with UCL Press. Hello, Sasha. Hi, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Yeah, we can actually see each other. We're not recording the podcast. I can see you, but everyone else can't see us. Yep. (laughs) It's it's nice, you know, I think it'll be better for the conversation as well. Uh, How are you today? How's London? Uh, Well, the sun's shining. Um, It's yeah, it's it looks like spring is coming. um, And uh, my vaccine is booked. So that does feel like spring is coming. It feels like we might be on our way out of this year. Yeah, like lockdown not just crisis. Yeah, like and then existentially, like yeah. a metaphorical spring as well as yeah. this really dreary winter. I think it's hard to appreciate just how horrific the weather is up in the North Atlantic unless you've really experienced weeks without the sun. It can really get to you. It's the greyness, isn't it? It's the kind of relentless grey. It's not that it's been particularly cold this winter. It really hasn't. I mean, global warming means we don't get really cold winters anymore. But but they're grey and wet and dark and, yeah. Yeah. Yes, they are. Not today, though. Not today. (laughs) Spring is coming. Woo! All right. Okay, so I want to put this book in the context of your career. So you have a couple of monographs really early on, Disarming Patriarchy, Feminism and Political Action, uh, and then Common, that was 1995, and Common Women, Uncommon Practices, the Queer Feminisms feminisms of Green Common um, in 2000, that kind of explore how feminism, as it interacts with political movements. And then, you know, and then you move into, there's this whole series of edited volumes Remaking Citizenship in Multicultural Europe, Women's Movements, Gender and Diversity. That's 2012 with Palgrave. Beyond Citizenship, Feminism and the Transformation of Belonging. 2013 with Palgrave. Palgrave, Reproducing Citizens, Family, State and Civil Society. 2015 with Rutledge. So these collections all kind of seem to cluster around and grapple with the norms of identity within the broader corporate private bodies in a rapidly changing modern Europe. So is that that's a fair way to characterize your interests up until now? I mean, I know that's a very incomplete look at your CV, but still. It's interesting, isn't it, how you may appear to 
to someone from what they see in your CV. I suppose if I was describing what what I've worked on, I would say, um, you know, my first kind of big body of work, piece of work was uh, was from my PhD, and that was about Green and Common and women's political activism. It was about the sort of anti-nuclear movement. Um, but really, it was about how um, how women pursue projects of the collective projects of social change that also impact upon them as individuals um, in kind of unexpected ways. Um, so, so I've always, I suppose, had an interest in women's collective action in social movements um, and in the kind of personal motivations and transformations that being involved in activism bring about. Um, so that was kind of an early body of work. Um, I then did a long project, which uh, I published some of on the way, but it's really my next big book project, which was a kind of 20 year long ethnographic project. Uh, yeah, <laughs> too long uh, and it really needs to be published as a book. But there were quite a lot of papers along the way. And that was really about um, intimate life and um, how how intimate life has changed. It was it was based in three places in Yorkshire. Uh, and I was interested in the experiences of people living um, outside um, kind of conventional couples and families and their relations and practices of care and intimacy. Um, and so I published quite a lot of stuff on that. But actually, over time, that project took different forms. And that's the next book. So maybe I'll talk to you about that when that, that's finished. But then, then I got involved in, in a, a big uh, European project, EU funded project out of which came the book we're talking about today, The Tenacity of the Couple Norm. Um, and that also took some time. Um, so that was a project, um, the bigger project that this was part of was called FEMSIT, uh, which uh, stood for Gender Citizenship in Multicultural Europe, the Impact of Contemporary Women's Movements. That was the title of the project. Uh, at its biggest, I think we had about 40 researchers, 40 feminist researchers working on the project across nine countries. Um, and the overarching question we were trying to answer was, what difference have women's movements made to gender citizenship over the last 40 years? Um, in, and, you know, and where, where are we now uh, in multicultural Europe? So citizenship was, was a theme, the common theme, I suppose, and women's movements. So it brought together a collection of, uh, of feminist scholars from across Europe interested in those two things, citizenship and women's movements. Um, and that project, it was an amazing project. So Phil, you know, it's, it's been so formative for me, that experience of working in that big European project. I was one of the scientific directors um, and there were six streams of it, each looking at a different dimension of citizenship. And the stream that I was running, the work package I was running, was the one on intimate citizenship. Um, so you see the title, uh, the title of the book has the concept of intimate citizenship in it. But when we started the work, we didn't have any idea we'd write a book about the couple norm. You know, it really was something that emerged out of the research. Um, so the specific research question for that that work stream was um, to explore the impact uh, of women's movements and lesbian and gay movements. So you, I don't think you can look at intimate life, intimate citizenship, if you're not also looking at the impact of LGBT movements. Um, so what impact have those movements had on intimate citizenship um, over the last 40 years? That was the question. Um, and uh, I drew together a team to study four countries 
So each of the different work packages of the FEMSIT project looked at different countries, which if we were starting again, I think we might not have done that uh, because it meant, it meant it was harder to look at the data across the different streams of citizenship, so political citizenship, economic citizenship, so on. But, um, but it gave us an incredible diversity of different countries. Um, so in my project, Intimate Citizenship Project, uh, we were looking at the UK, uh, Portugal, Bulgaria and Norway. So kind of four corners of Europe um, and four different welfare regimes, four different kind of histories of relationships to democracy um, and uh, in different in many dimensions. Uh, but, you know, we had uh, in Norway, we had a Nordic welfare state uh, kind of uh, tending to gender equality, uh, woman friendly Nordic welfare state in Helga Hernes's terms. Uh, we had uh, Bulgaria as a former communist country, post-socialist state. Portugal as a southern European welfare state, um, ex-dictatorship, um, kind of strongly Catholic. And then the UK as a kind of northwestern European liberal or neoliberal, if you want, um, welfare state. So four, four corners of Europe, four different welfare state regimes. Um, and the questions that we were looking at, uh, the sort of sub-questions were we wanted to, first of all, map the, um, the history of the claims of the social movements in the four countries. You know, so what, what was the women's movement asking for, demanding, claiming in relation to intimate life, intimate citizenship? Um, since about 1968 uh, and uh, similarly across the other countries, what was the lesbian and gay movement demanding, claiming from the state, from civil society? Uh, so sort of his piece of historical work um, and then a piece of kind of legal and policy analysis of each country. So mapping the uh, law and policy frameworks in each country over that period of time in order to try and explore the relationship between the claims and demands of the social movements and the ways that law and policy did or didn't change. Um, and then finally, um, the, the biggest piece of work that took most of our time and which substantially the book draws on, we did interviews with people in each of the countries. Uh, and I can tell you a bit about those interviews if you're, if you're interested. I would love to. Um, before we get into one of what 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 we end up having here, um, I want to talk about how you worked with other authors. All right. So, and you have you have four four other co there's five. You know, yeah, four others. Five, five of us all together. Five of yeah. you all together. Yeah. How did how did you decide to work together, and how did that go? Um, okay. So. Um, so Turner Hellicent uh, was absolutely key in the project. In fact, she initiated the overarching FEMSIT project. It was kind of her idea. She said she saw the call uh, that came out from from the uh, from the European Union and the European Commission uh, on wanting wanting work on on gender and citizenship. And she got in touch with me and a handful of other people and said. Let's do something. Uh, she was uh, she was kind of from a historian by by training by inclination. Um, she contacted me as a sociologist, a, a bunch of other people, small number of us, and we got together and started talking about what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to do something on women's movements, and but the framework that we were being offered was citizenship. So it had to be something that was about citizenship and women's movements, and we were all quite excited about this idea, um, which we then worked up. 
and put in the grant application. And amazingly enough, we got it. It was, it was you know, quite surprising to us that, that the uh, European Union was going to give us four million euros to do this feminist project that we really wanted to do about about women's movements in Europe. Um, but the conceptualization that that I kind of I think I think I kind of helped develop of different strands of work on different dimensions of citizenship. Uh, you know, I was very clear I wanted to do a project on intimate citizenship. I've been doing all this work on intimacy and intimate life. Um, and Turner basically said, well, I want to be on the intimate citizenship strand too. So so that gave that gave the two of us. And then um, the other three, uh, uh, Christina, Anna Christina Santos, uh, was a PhD student of mine at the University of Leeds. Uh, and Maria Stoilova was also a PhD student of mine, also at Leeds. Um, they were respectively Portuguese and Bulgarian. And quite honestly, that's how I decided we would do Portugal and Bulgaria. These were the people I wanted to work with on the project. Um, it, they seemed like, you know, sensible countries to choose. We were going to have to do Portugal or Italy or Spain. Uh, there was Christina, let's do Portugal. Going to do Poland or the Czech Republic or Bulgaria or let's do Bulgaria because there's Maria. Um, and then Isabel um, actually responded to an advert. There was a job advert uh, to do the UK stream of the research. And so Isabel came on board uh, and we formed our team. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been an amazing feminist collaboration from my perspective anyway. It's, it's you know, we, we're still all really good friends, um, which is a great achievement. I think when you've worked together for a long time, I think we started working, well, Turner and I started working together on the project in, ooh, 2005 maybe we were first talking about the ideas wow. uh so yeah it's, it was a long time coming and then we we start we did the interviews uh i guess we started the the interviews in kind of 2009 uh, the funding ran out of course long 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 before we'd <laughs> written the book um you know which is why holding the group together continuing to work together when we didn't have any funding anymore we'd all gone off to do different things um, you know, everyone was working on other things, other projects, um, you know, new jobs. Um, so we, you know, we were all, we all remained very committed to writing this book. And finally, we got it done. Wonderful. Um, yeah, that's impressive. Actually, that's a long time to spend kind of sorting these kind of asking questions. And I, I want to note this for our listeners. Um, this is something that comes up a lot when I talk to authors is how much your study, much like your life, just kind of happens. You know, you have this idea about what you want to do, but then you meet the collaborators that you really want to work with. Or, you know, I study, I interview a lot of historians and they're like, well, and then I found this document and that changed everything. It, it, you have like the best laid plans for, uh, for research and then it kind of takes on a life of its own, which I think is delightful. Absolutely. And that's that is the reality of doing research. I mean, one of the things I, I always look for when I'm interviewing prospective PhD students is, you know, I, I'm asking questions uh, to really explore whether they're prepared to be surprised by what they find and whether they're prepared to move with the material, you know, whether it's whether it's archival material, or whether it's interview material, whether it's people that they meet and talk to, you know, are they going to stay rigidly attached to the first idea they encountered, you know, the idea they started the project with, or will they be changed and moved and transformed by what they encounter? 
Um, and, you know, we we as a group were absolutely that, you know, that this book was not where we thought, it's not what we thought we'd write. Well, and one should hope not, right? One should hope yeah. that the story you make up for the grant proposal in the beginning yeah. isn't actually what happens, or then why have I bothered to do this Absolutely. work? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think that's great. This sounds like, a, that sounds really fun. This sounds like it would have been It a- was the most incredible fun. I mean, I can't show you because we're doing a podcast, some of the photos of our team meetings, but, you know, we... The whole FEMSIT group had a lot of fun. You know, we uh, one of the great things about it being a kind of European collaboration was that we had, uh, it seems like another world, but we had meetings in different countries. Um, so we travelled a lot. Um, you know, we had regular meetings about every six months of the whole team and we'd go to different places and each meeting would be hosted by one of our colleagues from, from that place. So we got to go to really nice places to eat in Istanbul and Toulouse and Leiden and I hosted I hosted the UK meeting and we actually had it at this amazing place uh, in the grounds of Windsor uh, Windsor Castle um, Cumberland Lodge but you know so, so each person responsible sort of took us to, to somewhere special in their um, home city or, or home country um, but the 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 intimate citizenship team, we were largely based uh, in London, but it was just Turner who was based in uh, Bergen in Norway. And uh, the rest of the team was based in London. And we mostly had our meetings in London, but we, we had a huge amount of fun. We worked incredibly hard, not least because of the methodology that we chose, which was very, very intensive uh, in terms of group work. Um, so so we did a lot of work as a team. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was just we were just very fortunate that we got on with each other um, and we had a lot of fun as well as working hard. Wonderful. All right. So let's talk about this uh, very important notion that shows up quite regularly is a, a, a fundamental kind of framing for the book. The idea of the intimate citizenship regime. Uh, can you explain? Well, tell us where who, who came up with this idea and uh, and what, what what does this mean and how does it work? <laughs> um i think i think we coined the term in the book um um i mean certainly i got quite interested in in regime thinking um in well probably before this before this project actually but um i'd been doing quite a lot of reading in in social policy comparative social policy as part of a previous project um and um encountered the kind of notion of of welfare regime and in the kind of comparative social policy literature, there, there, there's kind of been a bit of a proliferation of different types of regimes people have been writing about. But, you know, the, one of the responses to the literature on welfare regimes was a discussion about gender regimes and kind of about how gender has had been ignored in uh, Esping Anderson's work on welfare regimes. Um, so so welfare regimes, gender regimes uh, and starting to think comparatively uh, about intimate citizenship threw up for me the idea that that actually we were talking here about about regimes about kind of national uh, national differences in the ways that uh, law and policy and everyday culture kind of conglomerate uh, and and you know form create a sort of formation that that has some solidity over time that has some kind of path dependency that kind of you know pushes the direction of travel in a particular way and so it's absolutely not to say that the intimate citizenship regimes don't change within a country they they absolutely do 
but uh, you know there is a kind of direction of travel that is possible given what's gone before and I think that's one of the things that the idea of a regime conjures up it's a kind of way in which things are ordered and regulated uh, not in an absolutely determining way I mean you know it, this is not a fascist regime it's a kind of way of describing how the law and policy and cultures that that govern intimate life or intimate citizenship uh are, are how they're arrayed together mm-hmm. well, and there's um you know there's a dialectic there right from the 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 amount that what ind- how individual actors can behave within the system yeah. so yeah yeah, it's yeah, it is. It's about the, it's about the system within which people operate in terms of of their intimate lives, the frame the framework within which they live, and it's about trying to draw together, I suppose, the the uh, the relationship between law and policy and culture and social relations uh, and how that how they kind of hang together. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. And feed on one another. Yeah. Uh, it's also, I mean, it's essential when you're talking about places as diverse as Bulgaria and uh, Norway to, to sort out that you have very different systems, right? We have this, the same kind of species is interacting there, but within these very different ecosystems. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So there are four core norms of intimate citizenship at work here. The gender norm, the hetero norm, the procreative norm, and the couple norm. Um and we'll get into the couple norm in much greater detail in a couple minutes. But I want to uh, I want to make sure I want to get in that there are these very different regimes at play, very different normative behaviors, um, and that it's inc- incredibly important. And I want our listeners to hear this: that there's this understanding that these these have been understood these norms as why they're norms is that they're universal, kind of from time immemorial, and that they're natural rather than constructive. And constructed, and I think that's there is such a rhetorical power to the idea of what's natural and the assumptions within which we work that I just want to make sure that that is out there for our listeners that there's these these things, and you refer to them as constitutive, and I'm wondering if you could explain to us what you mean by that. Um, what I mean is that they constitute us as people. And they constitute intimate citizenship regimes. Um, that they have a kind of productive, creative power, um, and they um, they they enable, but they also constrain. Um, they they um, they give shape to our intimate lives. Um, the the gender norm, the the norm that differentiates between men and women sees men and women as complementary and different and arrays them in hierarchy. Uh, the heteronorm that kind of, you know, that determines heterosexuality as the natural normal way of, of having an intimate life. The procreative norm that determines that reproduction, having children is, you know, what intimate life is all about. 
um, and the couple norm, which is what we primarily address in the book, that the idea that um, to be a to be a good citizen, to be a normal citizen, to be a full citizen, uh, to be an adult, successful adult, uh, you should be part of a couple. These these four norms are kind of again we didn't start with this analysis, um, although you can see how these are not completely brand new ideas you know they're they're available to us in the kind of feminist literatures but you know we identified these four norms in our analysis of the law and policy of the four countries uh, and very powerfully in the stories that our interviewees told us um, so as we were doing our our analysis these kind of norms just just started shouting at us really um, and you know in the end we decided to focus on the couple norm for the book uh, we, we've certainly got a book to write about each of these norms, but we decided to focus on the couple norm because we thought that was what had least been discussed. Now, maybe not. Maybe actually the procreative norm has also not been much discussed, but there's a significant literature about gen gender norms, gender normativity and heteronormativity uh, to which you know we've also contributed a bit. But um, and it's not to say no one's talked about about the normativity of the couple either. There is a literature on that, but um, but not a kind of systematic uh, exposition and examination. Well, no, we I mean, try to do. It's not. It's not a key search term, is it? Couple normativity, um, no. the way heteronormativity, or yeah. right. That's. Um, and I mean, and yeah, there's something about. Uh, feeling that they're inevitable, feeling that these are suggested. And of course, you're going to come across them as a demonstration, it's such a good demonstration of how powerful they are. Another um, key term and kind of key uh, idea to understand is the category of citizen and what it means to be a citizen, which is far beyond basic legal definitions of where you were born or what have you. Can you talk about the implications for citizenship? Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, I think that it's, it's good to alight on this because the way we're talking about citizenship in the book and the way the whole FEMSIT project approached citizenship was not perhaps the way that, that kind of mainstream political science or political theory might approach it. So we were very much working with and seeking to develop a feminist understanding of citizenship, um, you know, rooted in a kind of you know, basic originary uh, women's liberation movement idea that the personal is political. So citizenship is more than just uh, political representation. It's not just whether you can vote or not. Um, and it's not just about women's representation in conventional politics, although we had a stream of work in FEMSIT on that. The political citizenship stream was about that. But in, in FEMSIT, in defining six different dimensions of citizenship that we were going to look at, we were expanding the conceptualization of citizenship uh, right across the kind of experience of of, of life. Uh, you know, so citizenship to us means political citizenship, it means social citizenship, it means economic citizenship. Uh, we looked at uh, religious citizenship, religious and, and ethnic citizenship. Uh, we looked at sexual citizenship, and intimate citizenship. Have I got them all there? Is that six? I think so. Wow. All right. Okay, good. Yeah, you, you listed six. Well done. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, my memory is not completely shot. Um, so, um, so yeah, we, we, we were kind of approaching the idea of the citizen in a much more all-encompassing way. Citizenship is about the whole of kind of human experience. And it's about how we relate 
to the state and how the state relates to us and it's about how we relate to civil society and how civil society relates to us across the different dimensions of of life and, and social experience. Um, so the FEMSIT project, and I think I think you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned the, the book that came out of FEMSIT. Um, so we produced a kind of overarching kind of collective book from the FEMSIT project, sets out our kind of you know way of thinking about citizenship as a much more expansive feminist concept, um, which we then take forward in this book. We take forward the the kind of thinking about intimate citizenship. But you know, again, not to claim originality to the idea of int- the idea of intimate citizenship was i think you know quite who first coined it i'm not sure but we draw a lot on the work of ken Plummer, um the british sociologist uh uh and jeffrey weeks is also i think jeffrey weeks and ken Plummer, two british kind of sociologists of sexuality gay sociologists uh who who used the term kind of long before we did uh, so we sort of stand on their shoulders with the concept but they they kind of offered it as a as a proposition, um, and you know what we wanted to run with was kind of you know a real empirical investigation um, of of the concept and its usefulness. Well, I think there's something when you think about citizenship as well. It involves like a fullness of being involved, mattering. Um, we tend to talk about being a productive or member of society, which means your ability to produce and consume. You know, and so there's there's this something about being a whole person yeah. there yeah. that. Um, but this reflects in your intimate citizenship the way the way you must behave on the private stage in order to be publicly acceptable yeah. is fascinating yeah and i mean i think if we're talking about citizenship we're talking about the extent to which people are included you know within uh within the social within the realm of the social within the kind of within the realm of the political extent to which they're recognized um and uh yeah recognized for for our their whole selves um the extent to which that, that you know certain parts of oneself have to stay unacknowledged i think that's when we when we're getting to the realm of intimate citizenship those questions of recognition uh are really really crucial um you know whether people's intimate lives are fully recognized or not uh by the state by civil society is key to whether someone is really able to be a full intimate citizen um that's that's how i understand that i wrote a piece uh in uh european journal of women's studies it was published in 2010 where i kind of developed a kind of argument about what full intimate citizenship might be that we we again take up in this book Mm -hmm. right um so how do you get at that question how do you approach how do you possibly know what that means to people what it is to be a full intimate citizen yeah what yes so um yeah, so that I mean, that's effectively what we wanted to do in the uh, in the interview part of the study um, to explore the extent to which people experienced full intimate citizenship, to the extent to which uh, I suppose their intimate lives, their experiences of intimate citizenship, uh, had been impacted by the social movements that we were also studying. So that was the kind of starting point. You know, have people's uh, intimate lives been impacted by those social movements um and that that doesn't this that that kind of stream of uh of analysis doesn't appear in the book but you know we'd already published that elsewhere um so we set out to interview people um in detail in depth um we used uh the biographical narrative interpretive method um which is uh 
which is a method that kind of draws on traditions in in kind of biographical uh, biographical analysis uh, and narrative analysis and kind of brings them together. Uh, it produces very rich uh, interview material. Um, so it involves basically the method involves just asking one initial question, one uh, single uh, narrative-inducing question, uh, squin in the BNIM terminology. There's a lot of term, a lot of acronyms in the BNIM method, the biographical narrative interpretive method. But you basically formulate an initial question that you ask all your interviewees, the same initial question, and that that's the kind of crux of the interview. Um, our question was, can you tell me the story of your personal life, all the events and experiences that have been important to you? Start wherever you like. <laughs> go go exactly <laughs> um now some 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 members of the team were a bit skeptical about this um before we started it a bit anxious about whether it was a, a method that would that maybe would work for kind of people who are used to talking you know maybe people have been in therapy or whether it was something that would particularly favor you know the kind of articulate middle classes um and uh I had to persuade everyone to kind of give it a go and to to run with it. Uh, but actually, we were all blown away with the amazing stories that we got as a result of this. Um, the stories were of different lengths. You know, different different people do answer that question in different ways. Um, you know, the initial answer to that question varied enormously in length. But everyone we interviewed really appreciated the opportunity to tell their story. You know, people like to tell their story. They like to be listened to and, and giving someone a space to to tell the story of their personal life without interruption and, you know, with encouragement to continue when they kind of stall um, is something that, that, you know, allowed people to open up and talk about things that often they'd never talked about before. Um, the second part of the interview, so after they'd kind of got to the end of telling their story and had been encouraged, you know, is there anything else you want to say? Do you want to add anything? Uh, then the second part was asking follow-up questions about things that they talked about in the first part of the interview. So the kind of basic rule of the method is that you don't ask about anything that hasn't been brought up by the interviewee. And this is this is kind of really important in the sense of being able to really just work with people's it's not unprompted because you've asked them a question, but you're not pushing into the interview all your concepts, concerns, categories, you know, pre-framing. Um, you know, you're you're then asking them basically, can you then the follow up is, can you tell me a bit more about the experience you had of X? Or, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, you had a really difficult time when you were at college, you know, in relation to your relationships. Tell, tell me a bit more about that. Or you you mentioned having an abortion. You know, what was that like? And the idea is to try and get people to both expand on the narrative detail and get closer and closer to the kind of emotional reality of the experience. Um, so we and, and you do that about. What we did was we we would ask follow up questions about the kind of key things that that people had mentioned in the interview that related to the issues of intimate citizenship that we were interested in. So we had, you know, we developed a kind of set of uh, and identified a, a kind of whole set of issues to do with intimate citizenship that we had explored uh, that came first of all out of the claims and demands of the social movements that we were studying. We then followed up in looking at the kind of legal and policy frameworks around those issues in trying to relate the relate, relate the claims and demands of the movements to the law and policy. And then we wanted to see if those 
those issues came up in people's stories. So what we would ask more about was about those things that were the intimate citizenship issues that originated in the women's movement. So that was the kind of method that we were drawing through the study. Um, so we didn't follow up on absolutely everything that they said. But, you know, the interviews ended up being long and detailed, incredibly rich um, and, you know, full of, of material about the complexity of intimate citizenship um, and how people's intimate lives are structured in relation to law and policy and social relations and culture but without us asking explicitly about those things um you know we never asked them about the law did you ever have an encounter with the law but you know quite often we we heard about that um we certainly never asked them you know what do you think about the women's movement or what did you think about the lesbian and gay movement you know uh, uh but actually we ended up having a lot to say about how feminism the women's movement had impacted on their lives so um so that was the method uh you know we gathered these long detailed uh biographical narratives from our interviewees uh and then we did a lot of work analyzing them and there's a whole methodology a whole kind of approach to the analysis of data in the method uh that we that we operationalized we did a five-day training course in this method at the beginning too um so the originators of the method kind of offer a kind of training course and we did that as a group and that was also really incredibly useful in terms of kind of ensuring that when everyone went off to their different places uh you know for for many months to do the interviews that we were all kind of working in the same way had the same same understanding of the method you know we're doing it in the same way i said that when we came back with the interviews to work together on the analysis uh, we had a kind of set of set of interviews that that had been yeah conducted in comparable ways across the four countries right um you say they were long like hours many days yeah no no not day i mean sometimes <laughs> they did take place over more than one day i, th I mean i think I can't actually remember what the what the kind of we did I uh, did some analysis of what the average length of time was and different you know were they different in different countries and things I mean I think they varied the probably the very shortest was about an hour the very longest was probably six hours something like that I'd have to check um um I guess they ended up you know on average about uh, between two and three hours maybe um different yeah, different groups did speak in different ways for sure you know you people tell their stories in different ways and we were interviewing um all our interviewees were members of different types of minoritized groups um so um in each country we had chosen two uh, two minoritized racialized groups to interview. Um, so in each country, we interviewed members of, of the kind of majority population, but also of two minoritized and racialized groups. And everyone we interviewed was either single uh, or in a same-sex relationship, lesbian, gay, or in a same-sex relationship, or in a non-cohabiting relationship, a living apart together relationship, or and or living in a shared living in shared housing. Um, so, so everyone we interviewed was living in some ways uh, outside kind of conventional families and couples. Um, that's what they had in common. So in that sense, they were all kind of uh, sort of marginal to the kind of uh, to the mainstream, to the intimate mainstream. And then they were also two uh, members of, of two different minoritized groups in each country and, and then also members of the, main, the majority population. 
So we interviewed uh, in the UK, we interviewed members of the Pakistani and Turkish communities. Uh, in Norway, uh, members of the Pakistani and Sami community, the indigenous minority. In Bulgaria, Roma and Turkish minorities. And in uh, Portugal, Roma and Cape Verdean minorities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so there were differences in how people told their stories um, and, you know, how how lengthy they were, um, and uh, but not straightforwardly mapped actually onto any obvious difference, um, you know, so um, it, it wasn't straightforwardly the case that the, the kind of middle class educated uh, white people, you know, talked in one way and other people talked in other ways. There were, there were real sort of cross-cutting differences across the different groups. And we haven't done a kind of analysis that settles on trying to compare the different groups. And that wasn't what we wanted to do. Um, you know, we considered it. Um, but actually the way we ended up presenting the materials in the book was was in terms of individual case studies um, because the danger of making any individual representative of their their group you know is it's that's a problem um, with this kind of biographical narrative work um, you become very attuned both to the the specificity of everyone's kind of individual personal experience but also to its you know it's it's social nature and and you know how it is it is contextual and related to their social position um but we didn't want to set any any you know uh also it's a small sample you know we interviewed 67 people uh, it's not a kind of it's not a survey um but it's it's big enough to be able to say some interesting things mm -hmm. right and i mean that that's obviously a choice that you've, you made for good reason. You didn't just only find 67 people who would talk to you, obviously, right? That's No, the, it was the, it was how much, how many of these long interviews, I mean, the interview in itself is actually the sort of shortest thing that you do, because uh, it's the analysis that that is very, very time consuming with this method. Um, so we didn't have time, we didn't have the funding to do any more than 67 interviews. That is a that is a respectable sample size. I understand, yeah. you know, you, yeah. there there are sample there are studies that that focus on thousands of people or whatever. The big data, la la. But that's that is a respectable study size. Well done. Um, and and actually, it's kind of, it's a ma it's it's a little bit bogglingly massive actually. And I can't imagine do, doing something like quite that big if it feels like this. But I suppose having five of you helped. Um, and just someone to talk to and massive amounts of time. Uh, so uh, we're, we're closing in on the end. So I really want to get to it, kind of the heart of this. Um, you know, as noted before, it's assumed that this, that these, this norm, the couple norm is universal, timeless, and natural. But it's inherent here in the study to note that it isn't. It's not a foregone, foregone conclusion. This was a series of choices that were made. This is the way we've developed. So um, it's not the only nor the unquestionably best way to organize an intimate life. Um, so what? What? Why is it? Why? Why does it stick around? Why is it so? As you call it, tenacious. Yeah, that's the six million dollar question. Yeah. Um, because certainly we we what we found amongst our interviewees was was both that the couple norm was very powerful in their lives and stories and these are people who are living a slant to the couple norm you know they they are experiencing its pressure on them they're experiencing how it kind of compels them in certain directions how it impacts their 
their kind of sense of what's possible or what they should do. But also a lot of them were resisting it, you know, so there was a lot of a lot of evidence of people kind of challenging it, um, both, you know, actively, consciously, uh, you know, statedly saying, you know, I don't want to conform. They didn't use, you quite use the concept of the couple norm, but, um, you know, all sorts of kind of interesting uh, experiments in different ways of living that were kind of at odds with the couple norm. Um, so, um you know, the heterosexual woman who was uh, sharing her life with her gay male friend. They lived together. Um, they were, you know, deeply, powerfully bonded. Uh, in some ways, they were a couple, but they weren't a conventional couple. Um, but they also both had relationships with other people. But um, and also kind of uh, women, particularly women who were profoundly committed to friends, um, either to, to one particular friend, uh, female friend. Uh, one, one woman we interviewed in London who talked about how she, uh, she wanted to have a civil partnership with her best friend. So again, another kind of version of a couple, uh, but also, you know, groups of friends and really kind of centering around groups of friends. So, you know, quite conscious resistance, but also less clearly articulated resistance, um, you know, where perhaps there wasn't the same access to a kind of a sense of agency, um, but a kind of profound resistance to the expectations of, you know, settling down and getting married. Um, so, so both kind of the people we talk to experiencing the power of the couple norm, but also, you know, engaging in kind of everyday resistance. Why does it persist uh, in spite of that? I mean, there's, there's a kind of a bit of a psychoanalytic um, uh, excursion at the end of the book, um, which, you know, is probably more me than the other authors, um, where we look at how, um, you know, what, what is it about the, the dyad that might be so compulsive? You know, so is it just the kind of social norm that's operating here or is there something else going on? Um, and I'm quite interested in uh, the idea of the normative unconscious, which is developed by American uh, psychoanalyst, psychoanalytic theorist Lynn Layton, um, who, who talks about how, how normativity gets inside our kind of unconscious. Um, the unconscious isn't, uh, isn't something that's asocial. It is, it is socially produced uh, and so operates kind of from within as well as from without. So there's a good discussion towards the end of the book about the kind of psychosocial dimensions of, of the couple norm, uh, not just seeing it as kind of imposed from the outside, but also something that, that you know, is experienced uh, very powerfully as a kind of internal pressure. And then also moving on to thinking about well, whether there are, might also be something about the kind of fundamental relationality of what it is to be a human being. Um, and perhaps something that that goes back to our very gestation. Um, you know, we are gestated in the side, the body of our mothers, inside the body of another human being. Uh, we're kind of fundamentally relational and connected to one other person from the very beginning. Um, and maybe there is something about that. This is kind of psychoanalytic speculation on my part, but maybe there is something rather fundamental about that uh, and that uh, that means that that there is comfort in a close deep attachment to one other person 
that perhaps exceeds the kind of social pressure. And it's impossible to detach it from the social pressure, the social and cultural pressure of the couple norm, because that's always there. Um, but um, there is something kind of interesting to explore about um, about the relationship between uh, the kind of psychic and relational aspects of the couple norm and the more clearly social and cultural aspects. And that's this kind of psychosocial terrain that that I have kind of longer standing and, and more uh, broad ranging interest in, I suppose. I'm also I'm also a psychotherapist, psychoanalytic therapist, group analyst. Um, so there's a certain kind of uh, excursion into some of those ideas at the end of the book. So is that what's next? Is, are you going to continue with this? Uh, well, the, the the group the group of us who are, who wrote the book are, are working together at the moment on another paper. We we found it impossible not to turn our attention to to the coronavirus crisis, uh, and we're working on something about the couple and coronavirus and intimate citizenship regimes uh, because. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting case that if we can detach ourselves enough from the experience of living through it, um, you know, what does the current crisis and the way that, that states have uh, intervened in kind of exceptional, extraordinary ways in uh, all of our kind of everyday freedoms, what does that say about intimate citizenship regimes? You know, what assumptions have states made about the forms of intimate life that we have, about how they might regulate them. Um, so we've been looking again at our four countries because we kind of know quite a lot about the countries now and their histories to see whether there are differences in how uh, the four countries have responded to the to the crisis in, in terms of how they have tried to regulate intimate life, um, you know, what rules and what assumptions have they made uh, about uh, how people live their intimate lives because the regulations around around COVID-19 are shot through with assumptions about how people live. Uh, and in fact, you know, coronavirus is a it's a virus of intimate contact. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of perfect case study. So we've, we've kind of come back together to do a piece of work on that. That's our current work. But I've also got other stuff to do. I've got, as I said earlier, I've got this 20 year long ethnographic project called Living Change, uh, which I need to get on with writing up as well. Wow. I am, uh, I'm really taken by the idea of this coronavirus project. Yeah. And the way, the way that states have intervened to protect the relationships they deem essential and yeah. separate others is very, mm, that's compelling. That's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, that all is. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. This was lovely, a nice, lovely break. Um, Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. And uh, we'll talk some more about over the next project. Maybe we'll get together I for this. I look forward so. to it. Fantastic. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye.